from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program is Dr. Peter Feilman discussing his book, A PhD is Not Enough. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the natural world is a fascinating and exciting place rife with scientific discoveries waiting to be made. Yet, perhaps more difficult and at times confusing than making these discoveries is making a career out of doing science. How can the aspiring scientist survive a career in science? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. Peter Feibelman. Dr. Feibelman is a senior scientist at Sandia National Laboratories, and he has authored the book A PhD is Not Enough, A Guide to Survival in Science, which uh, offers some straightforward advice to the aspiring young scientist. And uh, Dr. Feibelman, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Not at all. Glad to be with you. Well, it's certainly our pleasure to have you on the program, and uh, I think this is a very resourceful uh, book for uh, any aspiring scientist. A PhD is not enough. Why did you decide to write the book? Well, I had difficult beginnings myself. It took me seven years between a PhD and a permanent job. And then once I had my permanent job, over time, I witnessed uh, some of the brightest kids in America make their lives more difficult or uh, ruin their scientific careers uh, by not thinking about what they ought to be doing. And uh, what were some of the common mistakes that you saw young scientists uh, make? Well, for example, allowing oneself to be put in uh, a position where it wasn't clear uh, who would be getting credit for the work that was done, and then instead of doing work, fighting over who would get the credit. Uh, That was one example. Uh, Another one is not paying attention to how much time you have to complete a project, uh, and then taking on a project that is much longer than the time frame uh, that you'll uh, have uh, before you need to find a, uh, a new position. So if somebody assigns you a project that's going to take five years to accomplish, and in a year and a half you need to be out looking for a job, uh, that's not going to be a happy situation. You won't, have, uh, you won't have a story to tell, and you're unlikely to persuade anybody that you are the person. Mm-hmm. I think one of the themes that I saw in your book come through is constantly asking yourself the question, what is my job? What should I be doing? Absolutely. You have to get your priorities straight. And if somebody asks you to uh, be the chairman of a committee uh, or contribute to science uh, sort of in that way, what you really ought to be doing is finishing projects and writing and publishing papers, you're going to end up in trouble. For example, if you're a postdoctoral scientist and your advisor tells you that there's a competition for grants coming up, why don't you spend some time writing a proposal, uh, but in fact you've not finished a research project, and again you're looking at having to find a job pretty soon, uh, you might win some credit by winning funding, but you'll win more credit by actually finishing something and having some exciting science to tell the world about. 
And so you should set your priorities accordingly. Mm. In sort of today's science, it's sort of a balancing act between the two because uh, money is uh, almost all important funding of your science. Right. And, and moreover, science is becoming very bureaucratic. So you, I mean, you have to accommodate to the system, but you also have to maintain a clear focus on what, what you're about. And for a young person with not that much experience, that's not so easy to do. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted my book to be out there, so that there would be a, a ready reference on a variety of questions having to do with how you get from your doctorate to a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the important themes in the book also is, uh, at, at all stages, finding a good mentor. Yes, that can be easy or it can be quite difficult. Uh, a good mentor is not necessarily a Nobel Prize winner, mm-hmm. Certainly not somebody who is spending so much time away from his institutions, his university department, that you can never see the person. And it's also very important that the person feel a sense of, I mean, the mentor feel a sense of responsibility uh, toward you to make sure that you don't go off the rails and uh, also to make sure you are not spinning your wheels mixed metaphors. And, uh, so you need an individual who is sufficiently caring. And in my experience, that's somebody who's quite far along in his career, who takes a fatherly or motherly interest in you, and is not just focused on winning the next Nobel Prize. <laughs> of course, those are easy to come by, right? <laughs> uh, well, uh, oh, Nobel Prizes? No, they're not easy to come by. Uh, and But, uh, I mean, we don't go into science with the idea that we're going to win a big prize. We go into science because uh, we're excited about learning how the world works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly true. And um, in your book, you talk about various venues where science can be done, uh, sort of relative merits of industry, academia, and government. wondering if you could compare the three. Yes. Well, uh, as I do say in the book, most people in graduate school imagine that being just like their professor is what they want to do, and oftentimes the professor reinforces that. Oftentimes the professor has never experienced science life outside the university context anyway, but it's not obvious that being a professor is the ideal uh, route to a happy career. I've worked for 36 years at a national laboratory, and have had a very nice life outside of work. I've been able to accomplish quite a lot, but at the end of the day, I can go home and read a book. Uh, When I had young children, I could spend time with my children. And uh, had I been in a situation where, in addition to my research job, I had all all, all sorts of other uh, responsibilities, such as uh, preparing lectures, grading exams, participating in departmental activities and and so forth, uh, it is likely that my life would have been much more difficult. And I mean, I've known many professors who take their jobs very seriously, who rarely have a vacation. And I wanted to have a life. So, and, and what I found out in the course of my work at the National Lab was that that was a possibility. I had been an assistant professor for a few years before I came to the lab, and I was working 16 hours a day, and I didn't really like that. In a way, dependent on what uh, a person wants as well. Right. One of the things that I emphasize in the book is that establishing yourself in a permanent uh, research position is, in effect, making a deal. You have certain things that you want. Uh, The people who hire you have things that they want. Both of you will probably have to compromise a certain amount. But if you don't have a clear idea of 
what your abilities are, what your desires are, and so forth. You will not make a good deal, and you will end up being unhappy. And if the department that uh, takes a look at you doesn't see somebody that will fulfill what they have in mind, that also won't work. And so you have to find a common ground. Uh, Part of that is know thyself. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other important part is respect your audience and the people whom you want to hire you. Yeah, that second point is uh, something that goes uh, into other aspects as well, for example, giving talks and writing papers. Well, when I started out as a junior scientist, I had very little idea of how to give a talk, and I thought that if I just focused uh, entirely on the technical things that I had accomplished, that everybody would admire that because everybody who was already there was an expert. Uh, All those gray beards out there uh, conveyed to me uh, a wisdom Uh, But in fact, most scientists uh, are not quite so broad, and you have to make a serious effort to communicate to your entire audience if you want your audience to learn something from you and ultimately uh, to respect you as somebody who is willing to go the extra mile to teach. And so having a sense of what your audience is like uh, is absolutely essential if you want to gain an advantage from actually standing up in front of people and, and and talking. And of course, it makes a difference what the venue is. So if you are at a meeting that is all experts, then a lot of uh, introductory material can be dropped because you know for certain that everybody uh, is on the same page. However, if you are giving a university colloquium, sort of as part of your job interview, for example, then many of the people there will be in fields that are quite remote from yours. So even if everybody is advertised as a physicist, uh, physics is a very broad field. People who do biophysics and people who do high-energy particle physics probably have very little idea of what each other are doing, and therefore uh, it's incumbent on you to set the stage for your talk. Uh, And also when you describe your technical uh, achievements, you have to do it in a way that emphasizes the concepts Uh, that are important and not go into the infinite details that I would have done two years after my degree. Fortunately for me, I had a mentor who, in that case, saw that I was going off the rails and said, listen, you're not preparing your talks the way you need to if you ever want to have a job. Uh, And that lesson was very important to me. There's a point in your book that you bring up saying that uh, as a scientist, one should be more problem-focused rather than technology-focused. Well, in science, much progress is made by the development of new technologies, uh, for example, microscopies or the laser or what have you. And uh, it is easy to get very excited about the new technology, and basically you have a new toy and you want to play with it. Uh, But ultimately, uh, you have to worry that the well is going to run dry and that what science is really about is how the world works, not what can I do with this new toy. I mean, you can make some progress that way, but as, uh, as, a, as a rule, you want to focus on a problem area and use whatever you can bring to bear on it to solve the, the problem at hand. So that is why. I, and, and I have discovered over the years that the scientists who are problem-oriented also give the best talks because they have a broad view of things 
basically you don't want to be in the position of having a hammer and looking for a nail. Is is there sort of a problem with science education generally is that process of being educated as a scientist is given a technique and told to learn it, but uh, rather the big picture is oftentimes lost in in the process? Well, there is some tendency uh, along those lines, but all of us who are in science think of ourselves as independent researchers, and independence carries with it the burden of learning and taking responsibility for yourself. And so if you are in a department, nothing stops you from broadening your understanding of of what's going on. I must say one of the advantages of being in a university is that the requirement that you teach all kinds of courses does help you be broader. In a a national lab type situation, uh, it's possible to become very narrow. And all in all, that's not such a terrific idea. So you do want to be deep. So, I mean, there's a balancing act, again, you, uh, between broad and shallow and narrow and deep, and you want to be deep enough that you can do something significant, but not so narrow that you really have little idea of the place of your work in the big picture. Right, uh, missing the forest for the trees. Yeah. Um, once uh, you've sort of gone out there in the world, you've gotten your PhD, you've had a few uh, temporary positions, uh, how does one land that coveted permanent position, and what, uh, how does one then establish themselves independently? <laughs> how one finds a permanent position is, I mean, it's not, not so easy. But you do have various opportunities as a scientist to make yourself well-known. It's kind of, you know, you start out being uh, one of the puppies in the store window, and uh, you want to be the one that's chosen, and you have to get out front and uh, be the most appealing to the rest of the world. And so you can ask yourself, uh, how do I go about doing that? And uh, one thing I like to emphasize, I give talks on this subject, so I have this more or less clear in my mind, but you want to avoid, for starters, looking for a job sort of at the end of your tenure as a postdoc, say. Uh, or at the end of graduate school. In other words, you don't want to spend uh, 85% of your time doing a problem and then say, oh, well, now it's time to find a job, so I'll start sending out lots of applications. What you really want to do is spend your time being a scientist, uh, and that means not just doing uh, the problem that you were assigned or that you chose for yourself, but uh, going to meetings, being prepared, doing your homework before you go to the meetings so you can ask Uh, interesting questions at the end of talks and engage with uh, people who are already established in the field. You have the internet at hand, you have email at hand. Uh, If there's something you don't understand and there's an expert out there who you think probably does, you can engage in correspondence with that person. And by doing that sort of thing, you uh, become recognized as one of a group of serious scientists. And so uh, that way you emerge from the pack And uh, when the time comes to consider who would be a good person to hire, people might actually know who you are. And the result of that, uh, if you are fortunate, is that when that stack of uh, application letters is uh, looked at, uh, somebody in the department that you're interested in will say, oh, I I met him at the, uh, you know, whatever scientific conference, and he seemed like the sort of person who would, be stimulating to have around. Why don't we invite him in and see if we can create a position for that person? And uh, so, so basically, if you engage in a, if you think of getting a job as engaging in some sort of a courtship rather than having an interview trip, which I fancy is a blind date, uh, your chances will probably be better. 
So it's more of a, a process uh, throughout the, and just building up the general network of scientific connections and becoming part of the community. I mean, if you have a prominent thesis mentor or postdoc mentor, that person can certainly help and might even be the key to getting a first job. But over time, people are going to expect you to be productive and you to be a scientist. And the fact that you worked with some very prominent person will lose importance. And so getting a foothold in the scientific community means being a scientist and uh, sort of, I mean, there's, there's many more people who get PhDs than there are jobs available uh, at the level that most people dream of, of having. And so you have to do something to make yourself more prominent and more desirable as a, a co-worker than your competition. And, I mean, you might fancy that when you're in graduate school, uh, we're all in this together and we're all going to find jobs, but it's just not true. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want people to have poor relations with each other because they realize that they're all in competition, but it's a fact. And uh, so you you somehow or other have to do what it takes to stand out. Mm-hmm. It's certainly true, I think, of, of any endeavor, really, but uh, perhaps more so in science. Well, I don't know. I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, before I published the book, by the way, the book first came out 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. What came out in January is a second edition with some new stuff. Uh, I had it read by people in various fields, and uh, you know, librarians told me that they thought the advice in the book would have made their uh, getting a job uh, easier. And, and I would say that mostly what's in the book is common sense, but that common sense is in much shorter supply than most people would like to think. Sometimes among scientists, even more so. <laughs> Well, you know, scientists are uh, scientists are people who enjoy being by themselves in a lab or in front of a computer and uh, applying their gifts. And when it comes to the sort of social interactions that are necessary to actually get the job that they want, they may not be so gifted at that and will have to work harder than the average person for that. You know, while while people like me are in their in their dorm room studying and getting A's on the tests the next day. Uh, other people are out having a beer and slapping back. And, uh, so we're different. Uh, in the 17 years since uh, the book first came out, what, uh, what do you think's changed about science, uh, being a scientist? Well, of course, I mean, science has developed tremendously. We have an Internet now, which we mm-hmm. didn't have, so I can collaborate with people across the world just by clicking buttons, and I can, I can compose my articles uh, in a way that doesn't involve uh, having to go back to, to a secretary or a draftsman and have them uh, revise things 15 times, and they get frustrated with me, and I get frustrated with them. So technically, producing results, actually, whether in the laboratory or when you're ready to write something up, has gotten a lot easier, and communication has gotten uh, far easier. And uh, searching literature to find out what other people have done so that you don't duplicate work has also gotten far easier. All of those things are really good. The bad thing is that science has become more and more bureaucratic, and it's not unique to a government-owned laboratory, it's not unique to a university, and it's not unique to the United States. All around the world, there are uh, bean counters who want to make sure that those taxpayers' beans are appropriately used, and so although there is considerable sense to that, if reporting and accountability and compliance get to the point, uh, or the demands get to the point where you just don't have time to do any work, then the whole process is self-defeating. And so 
there is some little amount of pushback, but basically we're in danger of being drowned in a sea of bureaucracy. And we keep hearing that this is going to be fixed, but we're not holding our collective breath. Uh, You did mention, of course, that uh, science is a global endeavor. What about scientists looking globally for positions? How uh, viable do you think that is for a U.S. scientist? I do think that brains tend to drain from one place to another. Mm -hmm. So when, for example, for political reasons, stem cell research was impacted by uh, decisions in Washington, I dare say there were many people who were interested in medical research who started looking elsewhere uh, where they could carry out what they thought was research that would make people's lives much better. And uh, I think that they were welcomed because the training that they had uh, in the U.S. perhaps wasn't so available to uh, people elsewhere. And so they they really brought something to the table. And I know uh, several people who have gone off to uh, do research in China or in Hong Kong. And uh, I think in a situation where a country is pulling itself up by its bootstraps, uh, the spending of money is somewhat freer. Uh, Perhaps the bureaucracy is less, although I don't really have any experience of it, so I shouldn't say. But people who get frustrated here, it's a free country. (laughs) You have a passport. You can go where you think you will have the best situation. And so science is part of a global uh, economy, just like the economy is global. Sort of in a broader scope, uh, how do you think uh, U.S. science is comparing now? I mean, it's always been very strong, but do you think be more stronger competition with the rest of the world? Well, I kind of doubt it. Uh, I think that mm, political issues and various countries' situation, I mean, what their sort of historical moment is may be more important. The economy is global, and as we well know, uh, the debt crisis in the U.S. Is, is reflected in debt crises all over Europe. And now even China is very concerned about inflation. You know, I don't think that there is any heaven. And and basically, things tend to balance out. I think the most important thing is that people people do have to vote with their feet. And so the situation gets bad in one place, then people will find some place where it's better, and that will send a message to the to the money people that, uh, you know, if we want to remain competitive, we're going to have to fix things. Uh, and if folks just say, well, I lived here all my life, and I'm, I'm permanent, and you can do whatever you want to me, and I'm not going to leave, then, uh, then nothing will ever improve. So I think we actually have to be grateful to people who say, I've had it, I'm going. <laughs> Voting with your feet, I guess. Yes. Well, I'm curious, we are running slightly out of time, if uh, maybe you have some final words regarding surviving a career in science. Actually, the book is less about surviving a career in science as it's about making the transition from your life as a student to a permanent position. When you're a junior scientist, though, you do have to pay attention to the same things that you were paying attention to uh, before you got that job. And so, you know, respecting your audience and writing papers that anybody wants to read and that won't put them to sleep, that's not something that you can forget about just because your salary has gone up and you have tenure. And so, uh, I mean, I think being attentive to what's going on in the scientific world and uh, perhaps deviating uh, from what you plan to do because something very important has happened, for example, uh, uh, nuclear reactors exploding in Japan, You know, that's important to do. We are, we're all here, on the one hand, to satisfy our curiosity and have fun 
doing what we're good at, but we're also here to serve humanity, our, our fellow citizens in, in the U.S., but, but humanity around the world. And so uh, I would say having a broad appreciation for um, what people are experiencing worldwide uh, can make you a much more a significant contributor, and it's something that people ought to do. It's one of the reasons, actually, that I recommend to young people going to a liberal arts college before they specialize in science, just so they have a, a better sense of what the world is about. Well, we are certainly out of time now, but uh, Dr. Feibelman, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, uh, talking about your re-release of your book, uh, A PhD is Not Enough, A Guide to Survival in Science. Thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. All right, you're just listening to uh, Dr. Peter Feilman discussing his book, A PhD is Not Enough, A Guide to Survival in Science. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.